it was not a marketing tool. It's just his name. Harrison Ford is going to come bring us the, the, uh, the word. Uh, it's been a privilege for me in the last uh, nine years to serve on the state committee for RUF uh, around uh, Virginia. And just to go and to hear about the ministry of how God is uh, reaching kids on our college campus uh, to know Christ and then to leave and wanting to go serve him uh, is really exciting. And uh, you'll see why God has that impact uh, as uh, Harrison gets to bring the word to you. Good morning. So, my name is Harrison Ford. I think I'm the better looking one, but <laughs> I'll let you be the judge of that. Uh, so, before I say anything else, um, let me just say thank you so much uh, on behalf of myself and all the other REF campus ministers in the state of Virginia. What we do, we do because of you. Your support, your prayers allow us and our families to move towards college students with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you hear me say nothing else, please hear me say this. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are so grateful for the love that, that we and our families feel from uh, congregations like yourself. So uh, it's fun for me to come here because I don't really, I've not really been to this area much. I'm relatively new to the Commonwealth. My wife and I moved here about three years ago from Charlotte, North Carolina. But I'm originally from Mississippi. Um, I don't know if you can tell the accent or not. And like many Mississippians, I went to the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, the superior school in Mississippi. Um, and while I was there, I did as I studied what many Ole Miss students study, which is the Russian language. <laughs> and if that wasn't bizarre enough for me to go to Ole Miss and study Russian, uh, I, God kind of took me on an even more bizarre path. I was wrestling between a sense of a call to vocation, vocational ministry or I was considering trying to, uh, my, one of my faculty advisors was trying to get me to do a PhD in sociology which is the only thing that you can do and make less money than a minister. So <laughs> I was wrestling through these two things, um, and so I decided to combine both of them, and I moved um, to Romania. It was the area in which I was interested in studying, but I had an opportunity to work with Mission to the World, which is our denomination's uh, missionary sending agency. And while I was there, I was in a town called Brasov, which is in the middle of the Carpathian Mountains. It's a beautiful, beautiful town, and in the middle of it, is what's called the Biserica Niagara, the Black Church. And it was built in the 1380s as a Catholic church, but then during Luther's Reformation, if you've ever heard of that little thing, um, it became a Lutheran church. It was actually a hub for the Reformation in uh, parts of Eastern and Central Europe. And then after that, it, it experienced a lot of different things. It withstood a Turkish invasion in 1421, uh, and then there was a great fire that went through the city in 1689, and it was, the fire was so great that it stained the walls of the church black, hence the name, the Black Church. It's one of the great symbols of the city, and it really dominates the, the skyline. And if you're in the middle of town, you'll always notice there's tons of tourists going through the church. But one thing that it is rarely full of is worshipers. You see, the church historically serviced the ethnic German diaspora in the city. And as time went along, more and more of the Germans moved back to Germany or other Germanic nations. 
And what happened, for the ones that were left behind, they formed a very insular community. And what they did was uh, it all but died out because they refused to actually engage the rest of the city. So this church, the black church, withstood war and fire and societal change for hundreds and hundreds of years. But as it turns out, its biggest threat was not from without, but from within. Because eventually the parishioners locked the doors behind them. The United States is certainly not as secular as Europe, but we're moving in a more and more secular uh, direction. I see that every day at VCU. And so the question stands before us, how are we, the church, going to engage in increasingly secularized society? How are we going to move forward into the new secular reality uh, that is before us? Will we do the safe thing? Will we huddle up? Will we lock the doors? Or will we do the risky thing? Will we fling the doors open and move out into the uncertainty and into the darkness? In today's passage we find Jesus' disciples behind a locked door. Three days earlier, Jesus had been crucified, and his followers were understandably afraid that they were going to be next on the hit list. And then Jesus shows up in this room, and he changes everything by giving them his grace and his commission. So if you would, please turn your Bibles uh, to John 20. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 23. John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we might know more and more of your love. Father, we pray that this morning through your Holy Spirit, you would illumine to us how that love moves you towards mission and how that love should move us as well towards mission. Father, we're weak, and so we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to capture this vision and to move out into it throughout the rest of this week. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I want us to ask two simple, but I feel like fundamental questions as we're addressing the topic of missions. First, why missions? And second, why me? Why missions? Why me? Let's start with the first question, why missions? Uh, So when we speak of missions in the church, it's typically as a subset of the other things that God and his people do. It's one committee among many. We take occasional missions trips. If you go on our websites, it's typically in a drop-down menu beside the other ministries of the church. And I think, you know, this is fine. Um, But what I think this reveals to us is that we have a tendency to compartmentalize, both in our church and in our minds, the idea of mission. 
In the Bible, however, mission is a more fundamental undergirding category. It's not just something that God does, but it's part of who he is. It's rooted in his very character. And so I believe that the answer to the first question is why missions is precisely this, because it's central to who God is. And we see it in this text, in the deeply Trinitarian scope of the text. The Father sends, the Son is sent, and the Spirit is given. Now let's break those apart. First, the Father sends. Um, So when we're first introduced to God in Genesis 1, on the very first page of Scripture, we see that He is a God who is full of activity and intentionality. He creates a world that is good, and He provides all that that world needs to flourish. But then, as we see, sin enters into that picture, and like a malignant cancer, it, it kills everything it touches. So what does God do? Well, he doesn't decide to just scrap the project and move on to something else, but rather he sins. He sends a flood to show that sin deserves judgment, but then he sends a rainbow to show that within God there's great mercy and peace. And then later he would send a people, Israel, who would be a light of God to the nations, a people constituted by that very peace and mercy. And to that people... God would send judges and kings and prophets, people who would keep Israel on the narrow path that God has set before them. He is a sending God. But then perhaps his greatest act of sending is when God the Father sends God the Son. God doesn't respond from afar to the fallenness of creation, but rather, like a boxer, he enters into the ring, a champion on behalf of his creation and his people. Jesus leaves the perfection of heaven to enter into the brokenness of creation. Though divine, he becomes human. Though perfect, he he knows sin so that we might know his righteousness. Though the source of all life itself, he dies so that we might truly live. And then, before his ascension, God the Son gives. He gives God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comforts us in our weakness and in our pain. The Holy Spirit empowers us to join in this mission that God has set before us as we live in a broken world. The Spirit is the down payment of the inheritance that awaits believers in heaven when we're not simply indwelled by God, but will dwell with God forever. So I hope you're beginning to see here That mission isn't just a discrete thing that God does, but it's a central part of who he is. And in order to fully appreciate, I think we need to see an even deeper part of God's character from which mission flows. It is the foundation upon which God's mission rests, and that is the love, the divine love of God. In the 12th century, there was a Scottish priest living in France named Richard of St. Victor. And he was meditating on all the passages, especially in the Gospel of John, that speak of God's love. And it occurred to Richard that love must always have an object. Love can't be singular. For there to be love, there must be that which is beloved. And so he wrote this, It is necessary... That love extends to another. 
Therefore, Richard deduced, God cannot exist alone. Divine love necessitates the divine community of the Trinity. And like a child that is ideally the product of a love between two parents and then is the recipient of that love, creation is similarly both the product and recipient of the love shared among the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God creates so that, so that his creation and his people might share in his beneficence. He creates so that he may look upon his beloved. He created you so that you might know that you are his beloved. I believe that many of us do not care for mission because we really do not believe that God loves us. We don't really believe that God could love the mess that I am. That God would move towards me when I always am trying to run from him in my shame and guilt. But what I want to submit to you this morning is this. The extent to which our hearts are moved towards mission is determined by the extent to which we see God's heart move towards us in mission. So let me ask you this. What do you think God thinks of you? And I recognize that we probably answer this question differently on a Sunday morning than we do on, say, a Thursday night after a hard day at work. Uh, We have a toddler, and I definitely answer this question a lot differently when the toddler wakes me up at 3 a.m. What does God think of you? What does he feel for you? Many of us struggle to answer this question in a positive way, if we're being honest. But the testimony of Scripture is clear. For God so loved the world that he gives his only son that whomever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's mission is driven by God's love. And the more that you are wrapped up in God's love, you will necessarily be wrapped up in his mission. Why mission? Because God is love. And so that brings us to our second question. Why me? So often we think of uh, missions as being something for a specific type of Christian. Maybe for people who are ordained to carry out the gospel. Maybe for people who are sent out as missionaries. Or maybe just that one person in the church that has a heart uh, for the world. But scripture, again, gives a different vision. Mission is for every believer. And I think there are at least three ways that we can see this throughout scripture. There are plenty more, but all I have is two hours this morning. So... Um, (laughs) At least three ways. First, we are made in God's image. The creation creation account found in Genesis says that you're created in the image of God. So what that means is that you are being most authentically you when you're reflecting your creator. And so if mission is central to the creator God, then it stands to reason that mission must also be central to the creation, to us. And we see this dynamic at play in the text in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Because we're created in the Imago Day, we must reflect the Missio Day. Second, we're united to God's mission through the Holy Spirit. 
In verse 22, we see that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to his followers. He breathes the Spirit onto them in the same manner that God breathes life into Adam. And it's this indwelling of the Holy Spirit which affects what some may call the mystical or personal union that we have with Christ. Because we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is part of the Holy Trinity, we are truly in Christ and He is truly in us. And throughout Scripture, there are many reasons given for why we're indwelled with the Spirit, but Scripture frequently connects this indwelling with mission. In just a few ways, in John 14, Jesus tells his believer that he'll give his Spirit and that the Spirit will teach you all things and cause you to remember all that I have said. Even though Jesus will ascend to heaven, his believers will have the Spirit as they move out in mission in the world to remind them of what Jesus has said. And then throughout the, the Acts of the Apostles, we see the Spirit empowering, guiding, and directing Paul and the other early missionaries of the church. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that uh, the spiritual gifts, the gifts uh, that make the work of the church happen, are gifts from the Holy Spirit. And then in Romans, St. Paul says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This, the same love that, God, that motivates God's mission, is now in us and motivates our participation in his mission. So put together, these passages just show us that just as the Spirit unites us to Christ, as intimately as it unites us to Christ, so the Spirit also intimately unites us to Christ's mission. The Lutheran theologian William Weinrich puts this beautifully. I apologize for the long quote, but please hang with me. The church evangelized because... He's speaking about evangelism in the early church. He said the church evangelized because it had to. This assertion is to be understood in the strictest possible sense. The early church did not begin the work of evangelism simply because Christ commanded it. Mission was not simple obedience to a higher authority. Nor did the church evangelize out of a sense of gratitude for God's love, out of a sense of responsibility in light of the last judgment, or out of a sense of concern for fallen man's destiny, although these may be considered emotive causations for the church's missionary activity. This is the key moment. I love this. Rather, the church evangelized because it could not do otherwise. And it could not do otherwise because in the Holy Spirit, the church had been taken up into the very activity of God in Christ, whereby the final purposes of God are fulfilled. Do you see what Weinrich is getting at here? He's saying, look, we don't just do missions because someone shows a video of people who desperately need us. It's not because someone, a missionary comes in and tries to push our arm behind our back and say, look, you, you know, get your act together. You need to get out there. No. We do missions because we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit who connects us to the mission of God itself. We cannot do otherwise. So we see that mission is central to who we are because we're made in the image of the missionary God. And we're united to his mission through the Holy Spirit. And third, we're entrusted with his missionary message. After Jesus gives the Holy Spirit, he says something that is honestly kind of strange, which is on brand for Jesus. He says a lot of things that are really strange to us. 
It says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. What's going on here? What does that mean? Well, some traditions have taken this to mean that the officers of the church, uh, such as priests in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition, can forgive sins, um, leading to practices such as confession and absolution within the Catholic church. But the problem with this is that nowhere in Scripture, uh, no other places in Scripture really support that strongly. Forgiveness is always an activity that God does in Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, surprise, surprise, I think Calvin gets it right. I, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm contractually obligated to mention Calvin once in a sermon, so there it is. I filled out my union card. The PCA doesn't have unions. So just please don't put that on Twitter. Um, I think Calvin gets it right. He says this. Christ does not convey to the apostles and their successors what is peculiar to himself. It belongs to him to forgive sins. Instead, he enjoins them in his name to proclaim the forgiveness of sins that through their agency he may reconcile men to God. Through their agency, he may reconcile men to God. Through my agency, through your agency, Christ is reconciling men to God. Jesus is giving the apostles and the church and you and I the mission of sharing his gospel. All this being said, the question stands... You know, how does the rubber meet the road? How do we actually participate in this? Should we all quit our jobs and become foreign missionaries? Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, for some of that, maybe for some of you that is the way that God is calling you to respond in this passage. But I do think that for the majority of us, this means that God is sending us to share the gospel into the spaces we already inhabit. Our families, our friendships, our workplaces. Uh, Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar, and two years ago he wrote two books that are really fascinating. Uh, they're about why Christianity, Christianity succeeded in the Roman Empire. You have to understand, Christianity, its beginnings uh, seen by the rest of the Roman Empire, was a, this small cult that was part of a fringe part of the empire. And, this, and Christianity was totally at odds with the rest of the values of the empire, a betting person would not have put uh, their money on its success. But here we are today because Christ is the Lord of the church. But Hurtado asked, what were the distinguishing characteristics of the early church that made them grow, though they were so counter countercultural? He gives a lot of them in his book. But I want to mention four because I think they uh, are particularly relevant for you and I as we think about how we participate in God's missions in our families, friendships, and workplaces. First, he says the early church was multi-everything. You have to understand the Roman Empire was a highly stratified society. They had very clear lines and boundaries between who was in and who was out. But the, that was not the case within the early church. The early church flattened those barriers. Why? Well, for at least two reasons. First, it asserted that if your faith was in Christ, your deepest identity was in him, in nothing else. And so that means that everyone shares that commonality. 
Now this was fleshed out when they would come to the table. When they would receive God's grace through the elements alongside people from all kind of disparate uh, parts of the empire. It was multi-everything. This was a radically liberating message for people who lived in the Roman Empire. Second, the church at that point was a community based on the principles of forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, The Roman Empire was an honor-shame culture. So if your honor was taken away from you, then it was your job to avenge yourself and to take away another person's honor so that you might get it back. Again, the church was not that way. It practiced forgiveness and reconciliation. Third, the church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and to the suffering. uh, During the urban plagues that happened, especially in Rome, uh, Christians didn't leave the city, but they stayed and would tend to the sick. Often, many of them would die because of that. Fourth, the early church was radically committed to the sanctity of life. Abortion was rare in the Roman Empire, but they practiced what's called infant exposure, where if there was an unwanted child, they would simply leave them in the elements. You can imagine what would happen. But Christian families did something radically countercultural. They would go and they would find these children, and then they would take them into their families, and they would adopt them and treat them as if they were their very own children. Why? Because that's what God had done to them in Christ. Notice that all four of these are very applicable to you and I in the context in which we inhabit. What might it look like for this church to be a place where people are so moved by the gospel that they share their sanctification with their, uh, with their neighbors by flattening social barriers that exist between us, by forgiving and reconciling by serving the poor and the weak and the vulnerable and adopting and fostering those children who are unwanted by others. Can you start to get what that might look like for this church? I hope you'd also see that regardless of your station in life, you can participate in this. There's no, uh, there's no amount of money that's needed for your participation in these things. Why? Because God has entrusted you with his missionary, merit, missionary message and united to his mission, you to his mission through the Holy Spirit. In closing, uh, in 2017, the movie Dunkirk was released, which is a really great movie. And it had this wonderful tagline in all the publicity It said, when 400,000 men couldn't come home, home came to them. The movie was based on the World War II Battle of Dunkirk. Uh, Dunkirk is a city in France, but it's just over the English Channel. And it was the spot at which the English army was going to invade the Germans that were in France at the time. But they made some mistakes, and so what happened was the German troops ended up surrounding the entirety of the the majority of the British force, 400,000 British soldiers. The Germans pinned them against the water. And so to many, it looked like the core of the British army was either going to be captured 
or massacred. So the British Navy tried to evacuate the troops, but the problem was that uh, the big boats the Navy had couldn't make it onto the shallow shores of Dunkirk. It was written that uh, many soldiers waded out in the waters for hours just trying to get to some of these ships. But eventually what happened was word got out back in Britain and it resulted in a phenomenon called the Little Ships of Dunkirk. 850 private boats, fishing boats, yachts, pleasure boats, anything small enough to make it to shore, 850 of them decided independently of one another to go to Dunkirk and to rescue the British army. They risked everything. They risked attacks, attacks from German airplanes that were going over the channel. All in all, they brought back more than 331,000 soldiers. 850 little boats. When 400,000 men couldn't come home, home came to them. When we were dead in our sins, forever separated from the spiritual home of our relationship with God, God came to us in Christ. When we couldn't make it home, home came to us. And now, like the little ships of Dunkirk, we're tasked with sharing that message with others. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how this message has met you this morning. Maybe you've thought before. I just, you know, I don't feel like that's for me. I feel like that's too big of a responsibility. I think, sadly, the church many times, especially in the West, has prioritized big ships, people who can go out, the big cruisers, the destroyers that are going to go out and save thousands and thousands. But it seems to me like. What the biblical testimony is, is that God is more interested in the little ships. You and I, people who are just doing what we can. And that through little ships like you and I, God will do miraculous things. He's been doing it since day one and he'll do it until Christ returns. When Jesus appeared to his disciples in this text, and when he left, he didn't use the door. I think it's a fascinating little, little detail in the text. Jesus never opens the door. It remained locked. And so after receiving his grace and his commission, the question remains in the text. Would these early followers of Jesus unlock the door? Well, hindsight's 2020. You and I are here because they did. So that's encouraging. But the question stands before us today What door is God calling you and I to unlock that we might be a little boat in his navy, participating in his mission? a willing vessel through whom he will do incredible things to bring many to him. What door is he asking us to unlock? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you're a missionary God. We thank you that when we were stuck and dying in our sins, you came to us. And through Christ, you gave us his righteousness so that when you look at us, you see him. 
Father, we pray that you would convince us more and more of your love. And that as we're convinced more and more of your love, we would also be convinced more and more of your mission. Would you help this church to be a church that is on mission in the various ways that you call all of these people to? Would you empower them, encourage them through your Holy Spirit? I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.